Welcome to the Student Ministry Matters podcast. We want to encourage, equip, and connect those with a passion to impact the next generation for Jesus Christ. Student ministry can be a lonely place. You might even feel like you're the only one in your church or community that cares about students. Well, know this, you're not alone. People all across the country are engaging Gen Z and care deeply about the spiritual direction of these young men and women. Whether you're full-time, part-time, bivocational, or volunteer, if you have a heart for students, this is the place for you. Welcome back to the Student Ministry Matters podcast. My name is Dan Carson, and I'm your host today, and I also have with me Chris Vines. Hey, Dan. Good to be back together. Hey, Chris. Today, we're going to be talking about mental health, and that can be a intimidating thing, but um, I'm a big fan. As most of our listeners know, my wife is a mental health therapist. She works with kids and teenagers and families primarily. What has been your experience, Chris? Yeah, no, I'm a big fan as well. I, I'm not, I don't have a whole lot of experience when it comes to uh, counseling. I mean, I've talked with uh, people who are counselors and uh, I always enjoy the conversation because it's a, man, it's a, it's a good one. It's a worthy one. It's, it's a needed one for sure. My personal experience in terms of recent mental health is I've just been drinking a lot of a lot of orange juice, sugar nice. for the brain. So <laughs> that's the extent of my of my mental health the, the last few weeks. And uh, I've needed it because we've started another year of school and, and I need my brain functioning correctly. So that's obviously not the kind of mental health that you're talking about. But no, but, you know, I, I get for it. it. I've got to have the, the caffeine to keep my brain functioning. So I'm a high doses of Diet Coke, which... You know, I know our listeners will probably send me notes. That's I don't think that helps your brain. No, probably not. No, no. But we're going to talk about some of those things today and just get a better handle on what it means uh, to recognize depression in our own lives. As student ministry workers, there's a lot of tough things that we deal with. Ministry is stressful, and these last few years have been, boy, heavy duty. Uh, stress. And so we just want to talk that through. We have a special guest today, and I'll be introducing him in just a moment. We want to talk about our, our podcast partner, though. Podcast partner is Central Baptist College of Conway, Arkansas. Uh, they're challenging, engaging, and inspiring. And they've started a new semester. One of the great things that I saw on their social media feed is someone made a donation so that every student that was a part of their chapel services could get a free uh, CSB study Bible. And that's, wow. yeah, that's a big investment in so many ways and just loved seeing that. Um, it made me want to be a student. I always like getting free stuff. But CSB is actually helping us with our retreat that's coming up. They gave us a few Bibles for us to give away. And so I'm excited about that. Not not one for everybody, but we do have a few that we'll be giving away as door prizes. Uh, but again, if you have a student who is looking at that college age, trying to figure out what's next, have them check out Central Baptist College of Conway. They can find more information at cbc.edu. Well, on today's podcast, we have Dr. Brian Shepard. Dr. Brian is a counselor. He works with a variety of people, but he's also a pastor. He is the pastor of Parkview Baptist Church in North Little Rock. He helps and works with our missions department, BMA Global, and we're excited to have him on the podcast today. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. I appreciate you allowing me this opportunity to be with you today. 
Well, it is a, a joy to have you on here. Uh, we don't talk about mental health enough when it comes to ministry. What was wild to me is yesterday, I am a part of a couple of cohorts, online groups. One is with our work, and so it's a pastor's cohort. I'm also involved with another one that is for church revitalization efforts with Brian Croft, and both landed on this subject of mental health and depression for those in ministry. And I was just like, oh, it's time for us to talk about that. And Dr. Shepard here was willing to to hop on with us and to talk about it. So I'm thrilled by that. Dr. Shepard, we love for our, our guests to be able just to talk about themselves for a minute um, so that our listeners can get to know you. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in your life and ministry right now. As most of everybody in the BMA knows, our church was hit by the tornado on March 31st and uh, was a complete loss. So navigating everything after that has, has to, to say it was stressful is an understatement to now trying to figure out what we're doing next, where we're going, what we're not going to do, uh, and trying to get everybody to agree on, on what we want to do has been the most difficult part about it. But, um, I do know God is still on the throne. I asked him this morning, I ask him <laughs> every morning, uh, cause if he's not, I'm not getting out of bed. Uh, nice. I can just kind of isolate everything. Uh, and so and, and that, that trust and that relationship with Jesus is, is what makes it bearable each and every day. Dr. Shepard, we like to ask a couple other questions for our guests. Uh, we talk about, uh, number one, how did you come to meet Jesus? Well, I was, uh, I, I like to say it this way. I was, I was pre-saved as a eight-year-old in a assembly of God church. Uh, and, and I, I was, I grew up in the assemblies of God. And then I went to a Baptist college, which is where I truly got saved. I, I think there's a difference between knowing about God and then knowing God. Mm. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that I was saved as an eight year old, but I came to the full knowledge of the gospel when I was about 19 years old. Uh, and so, uh, then I, I say I got saved and become a Baptist at that point. Uh, and so it, it was an interesting, interesting, uh, transition there to say the least. You know, there was a, that's a lot of time, eight to 19, um, during those years, I'm sure that there were some people investing in your life. Our podcast is for the full-time, part-time volunteer student ministry worker who was investing in your life during those years. During the, the teenage years, uh, we had a youth pastor. Her name is Tammy Frederick, and she was a part-time volunteer, uh, but she really had a heart to pour into students, and um, she, she really led us well. When I got into, into college, Dr. Reynolds, who was the president of the school that I, I uh, attended, just really began to pour into me. I don't know why. My birthday is June 22nd of 83, and his birthday was June 22nd of 38. So we kind of had that that kindred spirit there. But they really, I, I can say, I'm thankful that, that they poured into me because I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Whether it's a coach, a teacher, um, whether it is a youth pastor, it's just such an important age and, and such an important age during that time. And so I'm thankful for all those folks. 
Brian, we wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about mental health, to really talk about this issue of dealing with depression. You know, we talk about counseling and there's still some stigma attached to that um, in Christian circles. You gave a great description of the type of counseling that you may encounter in our uh, culture um, yesterday when we were talking on, in one of those pastoral cohorts. Could you talk about that as we begin this conversation about those different types of counseling that's out there? Sure. So <clears throat> within the, if we can say the Christian realm, there are three basic types of counseling. Uh, the first is noethetic counseling. And noethetic counseling is, is a faith-based counseling method, but it repudiates all psychology. Uh, it's on the grounds of secular, they believe it's secular and humanistic. And so they are, are completely faith-based. Now, then you would see biblical counseling. And what biblical counseling is, is, is they believe that there's an essence of psychology, but I call it the guilt and shame counseling. You've done this, and because you've done this, it has resulted in this. And it is completely spiritual, biblically based. And there's nothing wrong with having a counseling that's biblically based, uh, which then leads us into Christian counseling. And what that means simply is that the practitioner that is doing the work with you is a Christian, uh, but they hold to, to the um, typical psychology, typical therapeutic uh, ways to work with an individual. Uh, and, and why that is important is because our bodies are created in a, in a magnificent way that we still don't understand a whole lot about. Uh, and if you say, well, this is strictly a biblical issue, then what you are saying to me is that your anatomy has nothing to do with how you feel. Now, we would not go to Scripture to try to, quote unquote, heal a diabetic because that's not how you do it. But in essence, if you apply that same analogy to, to what we see here of neuthetic counseling or even biblical counseling, what you would be saying to me is that the sin of overeating has caused the diabetes, and so therefore you must cure the, the, the guilt and the shame of overeating so that you resolve the diabetes. And we know uh, medical science tells us that you can't really resolve diabetes, that that's not, that's not possible. So my suggestion would be to see a Christian counselor, someone that holds to the faith, but has a really good understanding about the anatomy and physiology of the brain. And what's interesting, at least here in the state of Arkansas, you can't uh, be licensed and carry the title of Christian counselor, that combination. Uh, it's different from state to state, but my wife is, is a counselor who mm -hmm. is a Christian and went to John Brown University, so she has a very faith-based approach she brings Christ into those conversations because that's who she is. Um, and then she gets permission and kind of works with that, that person. So I've always seen what she does is, is an incredible ministry to families and to children. I, I just thought that might be a good place for us to start this conversation as we look at these ideas, because unfortunately, 
there's just been, again, the stigma attached to counseling. And we need to understand that it has a lot to do with our bodies, with our brains, with things that are, that are going on. But what I wanted to talk about today was this idea of depression. Um, we know that the last several years have been hard for everybody. I mean, you, you of course know that. One, you pastored through the pandemic and then you lost your church building. And so now you're dealing with that in even greater detail. Uh, but as, as student ministry workers, we're dealing with our students' pains as well as the things that we're trying to do and, and just working through that. And so I, I just wanted to talk about this issue of depression in ministry. And so, Brian, where's a good place for us to start as we think about that concept? Well, I think one of the <clears throat> one of the most important things for us to consider to begin with is that, and this isn't this isn't traditionally believed, but but I, I really stick to it, uh, is that between the ages of about twelve to fourteen, a person goes through what I call value processing, and so how they are treated between 12 and 14 lays the pathway for their entire life. However, they were treated, whether they were respected, disrespected, hurt, trauma, uh, nervous, anxious, all of those things that cause that will continue through the rest of their life. And the only way that that personality will change is through a traumatic life event. And so as, as student ministers, We've got to ensure the mental health of the individual, not just in the sense of are they depressed, are they anxious, but that we are sowing value into them as individuals, that we, we see that the good things that they, they do and we capitalize on the good things and not on the bad things. One thing that I say over and over, and I think I said this yesterday, behaviors are words. And if we look at our students and we see their behaviors, we've got to kind of look past the behavior and see what are they trying to tell us? What are they trying to, to give us for us to process and, and understand uh, what is going on? So I think the first key step here is to add value to their life, which is going to then give you a true understanding of who that individual is. And, and I don't really think that there is any one way to pinpoint depression in a student if you really don't know who they are. You know, looking at students is, is very difficult. Um, they are in a completely different world than where I was when I was growing up. Um, for that matter, you know, Chris is, you're 31 now. Is that right, Chris? I'm a little older than that, Dan. I'm 33. A 30. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, when we started this, he was 31. So <laughs> he <laughs> oh stayed that same age. <laughs> Hey, but um, your words have you, power against me, Dan. <laughs> my word. <laughs> so, All right, what, what, but what's happened is that the the world that they're growing up in is so different than the world that we grew up in, and whether it's thirty years difference or whether it's uh, fifteen years difference. I mean, it, it, it's just a different place, and so as they navigate that, we've got to to look at ways that we can pour in value in there. And so I certainly appreciate that. I, I want us to think a little bit more beyond the student today. As we think about those of us that are serving, um, I want to set up some some guidelines for us to, to help recognize 
depression in our own lives. You know, um, because this has been so hard, how do we recognize that we are struggling? If Because if we're struggling, we're not going to be able to pour those values into our students. We're not going to be able to recognize some of the things that they're going through. Um, so it starts with a lot of self-evaluation. And so what about that, um, Dr. Shepard? How do we recognize that we're struggling ourselves? So one of the first signs of depression is either lack of sleep or sleeping too much. And so if you are, if you're not getting six to eight hours of sleep or you're getting more than eight hours of sleep, you might want to try to sit down and, and figure out, am I overtired? Am I doing too much? Uh, are there too many expectations? Uh, and so you see that now you also can combine that with, uh, being irritable or annoyed all the time, or are you having a feeling of sadness? Are you crying for no apparent reason? And, you know, maybe I know that I have felt in times past hopeless or have felt empty. Uh, mm -hmm. and so when you begin to culminate all of these things together, you can really say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going down a, a path here that is, that is not well. Now, sometimes more often than not, I think it is either our wives, our spouses, our, our uh, friends that begin to mention things of, hey, you know, you've been really irritable here lately, or, or it seems like you've been really down for a couple of days. And it's not until we have those kind of instances that we really begin to self-reflect on, on what is going on. And we try to write it off by, well, uh, you know, it's summer school just started. I'm trying to get all my students together and do this and do that. Or I've had a week of vacation Bible school, or I've had a week of church camp. You know, we try to give all of these excuses and, and some of them may be legitimate excuses, but if you do a week of church camp and after the next week, you're not kind of revived in some way that, that these feelings of frustration or sadness or, or whatever it may be, don't start to subside, you may begin to think about, am I depressed? You know, and then we don't think about other things like, did you brush your teeth today? You know, and, and that may sound like absolute craziness, but did you take care of yourself? Uh, is there isolation? Is, is there extreme sensitivity to everything that's going on around you? And so when you, when you begin to add all of that stuff up, they may seem like very little things, but when you add it up, it becomes this thing that we now know as depression. Well, one of the things that just kind of comes to my mind immediately, Brian, is like, you know, I think we live in a time where the word depression is used a lot. I think you would probably agree with that. And, and there's probably in just like in a lot of things, uh, a pendulum type shift, you know, from one direction to the other. And so I think what you just did here was helpful in terms of, okay, here are some indicators for a person who may be depressed. I'm wondering what you might say to the person who is, who has maybe just one view of depression that is maybe could best be described as someone who's just always sitting in a dark room, um, you know, and, with no light coming in. I mean, that kind of thing. So like, in other words, the deep, deep, deep depression, uh, because what I'm hearing you say here, this person is still functioning. 
This mm-hmm. person's still moving about. They're still doing daily things, but but they haven't lost all ability in that sense. So I, I'm wondering how how would you maybe differentiate between those two and maybe shed some light on the fact that a person who is depressed isn't always fitting into this deep dark category. Yeah. So in in clinical work, we use the DSM. And what that does is it sets, sets a standard for, for each type of depression. There, there, you know, there's acute depression, which means it's just an onset. It's something that happened. You may call it situational depression. Uh, then there is a depression category and then there's chronic depression or, or long-term progression, uh, depression, if you will. Most people that I see that are truly depressed are not the people who are sitting in dark rooms. They are still grinding it out. They're still going every single day. But when they get home, they crash. They isolate. They, they're in that dark room. They may be using alcohol or some other type of uh, pharmaceutical that would sedate you. And, and so it's, it's almost like you're putting on this show in public but it completely wears you out because you're having to do it. Uh, and, and then when you get home, then you isolate, you, you, you completely fall away. Now there is a difference between having low mood and being depressed. Low mood may just mean that there's something situational that's going on that is causing these feelings or causing these actions but once you start adding them up, the more symptoms that you have kind of then calibrates what type of depression you have or do you even have depression? Uh, and then the severity and length of depression would then, you know, say, OK, well, you have uh, depression or you ge- have generalized uh, anxiety disorder or I mean, even depressive states can can enter into the spectrum of uh, of bipolar or schizoaffective disorder. Uh, all of this kind of leads down a road to something. They, the thing is, though, that with low mood, it's eventually going to subside. With acute depression, it's eventually going to subside. But when you are going into the four to six week mark, that these things may not necessarily have gotten worse, but they're still all there. That's when you begin to look at a diagnosis of depression. Yeah, that's very helpful. I mean, just to hear that explained, because I, and I appreciate the way you said, you know, low mood. I'm, I'm sure that's a I mean, I, I know it's a real term. It's not one that I hear a whole lot, but I think that's there, there's going to be weeks, like you said, that that things just don't go the way maybe you expect them to. And, you know, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm assuming as well, kind of that what affects low mood is certainly just, you know, if I eat. McDonald's for lunch every every day for five days in a row. That's probably going to have an adverse effect on my on my functionality and <laughs> like cause me some some mood effects, mood swings too. So a little I mean, a little worse than drinking orange juice every day. <laughs> I get that you you don't think I should drink orange juice every day. <laughs> well, I don't I don't think it should be every day. I mean, you're getting your vitamin C, vitamin D, which are you know here's here's another thing is that depression can be a byproduct of poor eating. You know, that your eating habits are trash. Uh, your, your body has to have certain uh, chemicals and elements to make serotonin, to make norepinephrine. Uh, your body does it, but it needs those things to, uh, 
to produce it. And the thought that you're drinking liquid sunshine, because that's how we view orange juice, uh, the sugar in it isn't always very good for our brain. Interesting. Now, caffeine, on the other hand, (laughs) (laughs) caffeine we know is not good for the brain. So, uh, I never drink caffeine. I only drink coffee. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> oh, well, Brian, hey, so oh. I, I'm sorry, Dan. I, I I just wanted to follow up right quick, and I'll, I'll and then I'll shut up. But uh, this is helpful. Uh, here's one thought that comes to my mind, and so either please either correct me or maybe elaborate on it. Hearing you talk about these different types of depression, you, know, you use the word acute, um, and then you use the word chronic, and and you just def- you define those well. Uh, it seems like to me. Of course, we're still in the conversation of the the youth pastor, the the adult, the the youth worker, the the leader, you know, and certainly seeing these things. When it comes to the student, it, it seems like the the chronic is not so much the case as much as it might be more acute. You know, there's some type of traumatic experience that's happened. There's something that's gone on within a friend group or something like that, and so it kind of immediately sends them down. Um, I don't want to overgeneralize that, but would you agree, disagree, or how would you maybe talk more into that? Yeah, I would, I would agree to, to that, that acute or situational depression is a real thing. Um, I, I do think that there are times that those, those things happen, uh, but it's not a clinical issue. Uh, where, where that becomes a problem is that, again, those feelings of hopelessness, those feelings of sadness, those, those mood changes are lasting more than four to six weeks. And that's when, that's when you need to get, get help. If there is something that has happened in a friend group, typically that low mood would subside within two weeks, you know, typically. Uh, if we're getting farther beyond two weeks, we really should begin to question, does this student need help? Am I the right person to talk to this student about this? Uh, is there, even as the student pastor or, or youth pastor, hopefully you have volunteers in your group that may know that person a little better than you do, that you can use as a resource uh, to talk to that person or even their parents. And, and, and I know sometimes it gets a little sticky with youth and talking to their parents because then they feel that, that you have betrayed them because, you know, this is something that you know about and and I don't necessarily want my parents to know. So there's a lot of navigation that goes within it. And, and like you said, I don't want to overgeneralize. Um, but I think the key here is the length of this low mood. Uh, are we getting past that three to six week time period? Are the, are the symptoms staying the same or are they getting worse? Um, and so definitely this, this, this low mood is something that we need to, to really be the first indicator of, okay, is this staying the same? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? And, and at what time do we decide to approach it? Now, as you both know, being in student ministry, there are students who have a low mood just because they've not been valued. And that is who they are. And that is, that's how they, they operate. Maybe they just have low self-esteem. Uh, maybe they just feel worthless because they've been taught they were worthless. Uh, I had a client a couple of years ago. He said something that really stuck in my mind. Uh, and he was, he was in his 50s. And he said, every 
day, at least once a day, my dad told me that I was worthless, worthless so much that it wasn't worth the bullet to kill me with. And, and that would etch into your mind as a child of, of feeling it's of worthlessness that this guy was, was now an alcoholic and, and we were trying to, the alcoholism came from his feeling of worthlessness as a child. And so again, in that value processing moment, however you are valued in that is what's going to stick with you through the rest of your life until you have a traumatic life experience and, or some people call hitting rock bottom. Uh, but that traumatic traumatic life experience may not be your fault. Uh, Dan mentioned earlier, he saw a counselor when his father died. That is a major traumatic life experience for you. And that can change or tweak your personality. Um, so we really have to be careful, uh, that we don't pigeonhole a student into some kind of mental health issue when that just may be the person that they are. You know, some students you would see that, you know, during the summer, they sleep till one or two o'clock in the afternoon. You know, that's, that's not uncommon for, for a student. But if you know that they're going to bed at nine or 10 o'clock and they're sleeping till one or two in the afternoon, then that's a problem. That's an issue uh, that, that really needs to be looked at. Now, I'm not saying that, that you go and start keeping a chart of how long your students are, are sleeping or not sleeping. Uh, but but that is that is a major uh, symptom that could be leading into something else. Now, if I may speak to real quick uh, about self harm, I have seen in adolescence today, and when I say adolescence, I'm talking twelve to eighteen year old, is that there has become I don't really want to call it a fad, maybe a trend that self-harm is more prevalent today than it has been. And, and typically it is with cutting and what they will try to tell you, which, uh, you know, they will, they'll cut their wrist or their hand or their, their forearm or their legs or their thighs. Um, but they will try to tell you it when you notice it is that, oh, well, I fell or I went through a briar patch or, I had one student tell me one time that he was trying to help install a air conditioner and the coals cut him. Well, that wasn't the case. He had been cutting himself. And the reason that people cut themselves is to escape the current reality, because if they are having mental pain, if they will physically cut themselves, that mental pain becomes physical pain. And so that gives them the excuse to then cut themselves more because at least I'm out of this sense, the same way that an alcohol consume, alcoholic consumes alcohol to remove themselves from reality. Um, and so it's important for us uh, as, as ministers, as, as student leaders, that if we begin to see a trend of this person is going through the woods a lot and they're having a lot of briar cuts or it, they're always getting cut in the same place, um, that we really begin to think about, okay, are there other signs? Are there other symptoms that could be going on here? Uh, and try to approach that in a, in a very uh, sensitive and caring and loving manner. Uh, because it could very well be that, that they went through a briar patch or they had something like that. But if, if you're noticing it over a period of time, uh, then, then you need to act. Also, just as a bit of information, if you notice that they are cutting across their arm, then that could be cutting. But if they are cutting down their wrist 
then that may be a suicide attempt. And so if you notice that the pattern is different, you, you may really need to intervene quickly uh, in, in those times, in those areas. Um, so, so I said, we'll talk about that very quickly and I've spent probably five minutes here on it, but, but that, that seems to be more prevalent today with our youth than any other thing. Well, Brian, you've given us a a lot to think about a lot to, um, focus in on whether it's ourselves, um, dealing with depression or low mood, um, or that with our students. And so I think this is really just the beginning of a conversation with us. And so we'd love for you to be back on the podcast again as we talk about these things, Uh, maybe some issues of self-care for us as student ministry workers. Before we get off today, though, there is a big question. If, If, as a student ministry worker, you find yourself in a place of depression. You've you've checked off some of these um, the list that you shared with us. What what are from some steps that we need to take? I think, and I hate to say it this way, but depending on your relationship with your senior pastor or your leadership, you may want to go to them and say, "Hey, this is what I'm dealing with." Now, obviously, there are some positions where you know that you can't do that. You know that that could put your job at risk. That could that could do all of these things. Hopefully that isn't the case, but the first step I think would be go to your senior pastor and say, hey, I think I might be depressed and this is why, and open the door to that conversation. Maybe it's that you just go ahead and schedule an appointment with a therapist. Um, Now, again, getting in to see a therapist, at least in the metro area here in Little Rock, could take six to eight weeks to, to even see a therapist, and sometimes it's up to three months to get in. So at the sign that you say, you know, I might need some help is when you should call and make that appointment. Um, Because if it is chronic depression, you're going to be worse off by the time you get there. Um, Or it may be that you have a friend or a loved one that you know that you can confide in that you begin to talk to. Um, What one thing that I suggest in the interim is to begin a journal of, okay, today I felt this way. I slept this number of hours. So that when you do get to a therapist, you can see the progression or regression of, of these symptoms to, and that gives us as, as, as counselors a big broad view of things that have been happening that you're probably have already forgotten about that, that we can look at these things and see the pattern to be able to help you with some of those things. Those are some great words of advice, uh, Brian. I appreciate so much you sharing that with our listeners. Chris, any other questions? Anything you want to to ask as we wrap up today? As always, I have a ton of questions, but we are we are at our time, and so uh, I, I will just echo what you've already said, Brian. What, would would you come back and and have conversation number two with us at some point? Absolutely, be my awesome. pleasure. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you. Thank you. No problem. Well, Dr. Shepard, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And and listeners, thank you for uh, downloading, being a part of this conversation. Um, this one is an important one as you try to navigate some of those, those feelings, uh, the things that you're dealing with, things that you're struggling with. You, you may be seeing them in your students as well. And so we want to have a good understanding of those things as we move forward, because we've got to, we've got to understand 
We've got to love on our students and we, to do that well, we have to be ready for it ourselves. And so we want to take care of ourselves in that process. Well, we're going to keep doing all these things because student ministry matters. Thanks for listening to the Student Ministry Matters podcast. Get connected at studentministrymatters.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Student Ministry Matters. Until next time, keep up the great work with your students because the work matters.